0: We are just creatures of habits, right? And so Mm -hmm. we do things in a particular way. And uh, how, basically, experimentation is both a skill, but it's also a conscious decision. And the more we get into experimentation, the more we get into trying new things, creating perturbations in, in our business lives, in our personal lives, the more we're going to learn and uh, through um, observing what happens and then, then we reflect on what happened uh, and, and why we behaved in a particular way or why our business performed in a particular way, why our customers did this as opposed to something else. And that reflection is then going to allow us to formulate new ideas, mm-hmm. which we can then again
1: test. To know that experimentation and innovation will lead to much faster gains for your company but your budgets don't allow for it, or the company is worried about the cost of failure. Don't forget how powerful the lessons can be when you fail, as the only failure is when you fail to ask why and learn from the experience. Fail fast, fail cheap, and learn from the exercise is a great philosophy. Our guest on this episode is Professor Maro Savatka, who specializes in experimental and behavioral economics. He's advised government agencies on behavioral public policy, studied matching algorithms used by stock exchanges, and explored governance structures of firms and employee behavior to provide managerial recommendations. Marish teaches his MBA students to apply experimentation in their organizations to learn what works, but also what does not. Welcome Marish. I am so excited to talk to you because even in the short amount of time that we had pre-show having a chat, I was screaming in my head saying, I wish I was recording every word that came out of your mouth. Um, So if you're listening, if you're watching, hang on because I think we're going to be in for one hell of an interesting ride. Welcome, my friend.
0: Thank you, Glenn. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, I am super, super excited. So we always kick off with this one simple question. How the heck did you get to where you are today? Give us the the two-minute, four-minute life story.
0: Um, I grew up in Slovakia under communism. And one of the things that communists weren't able to do, uh, I mean, obviously, there was uh, the Iron Curtain, right? You couldn't get through the borders. They kept us uh, locked in. But uh, my parents lived in Bratislava, the capital of of Slovakia. Well, back then, it was still Czechoslovakia. So we were in the Slovak Republic. And um, uh, Bratislava is right on the borders with uh, Austria and Hungary. Now, one thing that communists couldn't stop was uh, the TV signal getting across the border. And so as a, as a teenager, my favorite thing to watch on a black and white TV were Austrian commercials. And I was watching them uh, and I was scratching my head, uh, wondering how come they have different, you know, more and different types of chocolate, right? Whereas we had one and it tasted awful. And um That sort of led me, you know, to thinking about um, economics, about markets. Um, Communism was really known for the, you know, centralized economy. You had the central planner and um, I, I was just really fascinated as a teenager by how come some countries do better and other countries do worse. And so that actually led me to studying economics. Um, and then fast forward um, into uh, the 90s, um, I, my father was a diplomat, we uh, lived in Poland, uh, and so I started doing my master's uh, in economics at Warsaw School of Economics, which was a really good uh, business school, that part of the world. And I met a small group of like-minded people who were just fascinated by economics and by economic theory. And so we started reading together. Now, mind you, that time, uh, at the time, there weren't uh, that many economists uh, in that part of the world, right? Because a lot of them were just trained in the sort of the Marxism, Leninism, that thing. But we had some really fantastic mathematicians who were supporting us. And so we just grabbed uh, textbooks um, from uh, you know, Western textbooks about economics, sort of modern neoclassical economics. And um, we started from that and mathematicians were just helping us uh, get through these models and understand the logic of it. And I I just absolutely fell in love with economic theory because um, it was explaining everyday behavior. It just just made sense to me. Uh, And then I just decided that I wanted to be a scientist. I actually wanted to do the research on my own. I started the PhD program. And part of the PhD program, uh, we had a class that was called Research Methods in Economics. And then we were supposed to write an essay. Uh, And the essay was about, well, how do you conduct research? You formulate the theory and then you test it, right? Because that's the way of how we progress in um, science and how we um, increase our, our understanding of the phenomena. And, but I thought, like, look, I can actually take this opportunity to learn something new. And so I went, uh, we already had internet, right, in the 90s. Um, Now there was no Google uh, scholar, there was no, you know, Google search. And you might remember Netscape Explorer Mm -hmm. back then. And I came across these essays by certain Vernon Smith, who started uh, explaining that economics is an experimental science, unlike it was considered to be Kind of like observational, uh, kind of like astronomy, right? That, that we um, formulate theories and then we wait years and years for the stars to move or something happened in the economy to uh, test whether our predictions were correct or not. And Vernon said, look, economics is not that way. E- economics is just like uh, hard sciences. We can conduct experiments. And I just thought this was absolutely fascinating. So I went to my advisor and I said, uh, look, the, the models that I'm building, I really want to know whether they work. I want to test them experimentally. And she said, Maros, I have no idea what you're talking about. But uh, if uh, this is something that you want to do, perhaps you should go to the state and uh, continue your PhD there. And so I applied to the University of Arizona, where Vernon was, and it was the mecca of experimental economics back then. And uh, they accepted me to a PhD program, and uh, I just started conducting experiments basically since. A um, very important, uh, uh, very important uh, thing that happened uh, shortly after was that Vernon won the Nobel Prize for uh, economics and for introducing experimental methods into into economics, and experimentation uh, became experimental methods became mainstream. And uh, that was also important because other researchers started using them uh, more and more, and um, we also communicate with um, you know, the business environment, and so we have been also trying to, uh, as a, uh, you know, as, as experimentalists, we have been trying to Um, share this knowledge because it's also uh, practical knowledge that is very important and businesses can learn a lot from conducting experiments. Uh, So uh, I ended up, uh, um, after finishing PhD, I did a short postdoc in um, uh, Germany, in Mannheim. uh, And then after that, uh, we came to New Zealand where um, I was for nine years at the University of Canterbury. And then after that, uh, I got... um, uh, Headhunted uh, by uh, Macquarie Graduate School of Management in, in Sydney. Now it's Macquarie Business School, um, and one of the one of the things that I do over there is uh, I work with um, I, so I teach MBA students, and we work with them and with their businesses and with their organizations, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And obviously, our relationship with New Zealand didn't end. I mean, we love New Zealand, and we have been sort of coming to New Zealand all the time. And um, uh, it's, it's just a beautiful part of the world. We absolutely love New Zealand. So that sort of the, gives you some perspective of where I am and uh, why I am here.
1: Wow, what a journey. Um, and it must have been quite an interesting, I'll say, shock to the system, What it, going... Uh, into into the into Arizona into the US and, and Arizona Arizona, sort of like a hotbed of innovation a- across the board as well. So, what what was that like for you?
0: So, um, one thing that uh, really surprised me uh, the most about the uh, graduate program in in the US was that um, up until then, I was pretty much a, a recipient of knowledge, and. I sort of thought that the PhD program is going to be about uh, learning new stuff. And and yes, it was uh, the first year. But even in that first year, they said, okay, now we want you guys to start thinking about how you can actually push the boundaries of our understanding. How is it that you can come up with your own discoveries about what works and what doesn't? And I wasn't really thinking in these categories at all. I was trying to understand how things operated using the existing theories, using right using the existing knowledge that we had and this uh, this uh, sort of perspective was really mind-blowing because from that point on um, once I understood what really research is and what science is uh, I just you you can almost see me dream walking my wife laughs at me that whatever I uh, see I just start thinking about why does it work this way and I'm sort of never satisfied because you know when we even when I answer a question, usually the ans answer, the, the answers they multiply in a sort of a linear way, yep. But but once you find an answer, there's like five more questions, new questions that you get, right? And so the questions multiply exponentially. And so, so that was the beauty uh, of, of the uh, PhD program, and you know, something uh, that, that they taught me at Arizona that I'm incredibly uh, thankful for
1: straight into some of the harder questions, probably not for you, but maybe for me to comprehend. Um, So what are some of the key insights that you can give in regards to human behavior and business? Um,
0: One thing that, I often have a, you know, deep discussions with my MBA students is uh, that we can use data to understand why people do certain things, why businesses behave in a particular way. And um, the interesting thing is that people often think about correlations, right? So we, you know, businesses nowadays uh, with the sort of digital platforms that they operate through have wealth of data and then people try to look for correlations about, you know, two things that potentially could um, tell them about uh, what's what's happening in the business. The trick here is to understand that not all correlations uh, tell us much, right? Because sometimes they could be just spurious. It could be just things that uh, are absolutely coincidental. And the experiments that we run with organizations, with businesses or businesses that we can run ourselves can actually teach us about causality, right? So is something really truly causal or am I just seeing things by an accident? And this is very important, right? Because um, if you bet on correlation and it's only a correlation, not causation, that can cost you a lot of money. On the other hand, if as a business, you conduct an experiment and you learn that something works, that's a great thing because then you can actually um, scale it up uh, or you can try to scale it up, uh, implement it uh, and uh, potentially um, you know, become market leader. On the other hand, which is also important, is that uh, we need to understand w- that when we learn that something doesn't work, that knowledge is equally important as learning what you know what works. I actually have a beautiful story about that. If if, if you're interested, um, it's probably about one of the first experiments uh, ever conducted. Um, so this happened. Uh, probably one of the first trial that um, has been ever conducted was by uh, James Lind um, on a ship Salisbury. And so back then, a major problem that um, ships had was scurvy, right? People would just sort of go uh, on, on these journeys, and after several weeks, they would, um, they would develop scurvy. And uh, the ship Salisbury that uh, James Lind was on uh, he noticed that some crew members started already developing symptoms. So he decided to run a first experiment, first randomized control trial. And he split um, the crew into separate uh, groups and each group was administered a, what was known to be, or considered to be a medicine for scurvy back then. And so he started with salt water. There was one group that was getting another group, ended up uh, getting an orange, another one get, uh, ended up getting a lemon. And he noticed that the ones who were getting um, oranges and uh, lemons were getting better. And that basically led to the discovery that um, vitamin C, right, later on, uh, is, is what is what helps. And so people take this as the moral of the story. Now, what is equally important and what often we forget about is that in that same ex- experiment, Uh, James Lind discovered that we should not treat scurvy with salt water. And so in in a similar fashion, right? If if you're a business, you really want to know what does not work.
1: Well, maybe if he was even more ahead of his time, he could have mixed the salt water with lemon and created the ultimate fasting cleansing diet. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And again, experimentation, (laughs) right? Trying new things. Uh, and sort of understanding how, how, how this works. Uh, absolutely crucial. I don't know whether you know, do, do you know what uh, do penicillin and um, uh, um, the microwave have in common?
1: What? Tell me.
0: So both of them uh, are actually failed experiments. Both of them are failed attempts, right? So Alexander Fleming, when he was conducting his experiments, he got a little bit of mold in his petri dish. And then he discovered that the bacteria, I think it was Staphylococcus that he had there, um, were actually not, they stopped growing, right? And that accidental discovery then led to the creation of penicillin um percy spencer uh was experimenting with these tubes with the vacuum and then he was sort of pointing them out and then he noticed that uh, he had chocolate on, on him and the chocolate melted and so he started pointing the tubes again and he figured out that actually that was um, that was what caused it. And so then uh, that discovery then later, later uh, led to uh, what we know today uh, as a you know kitchen appliance called the microwave. right So these failed attempts can also be a source uh, of new knowledge. Now that doesn't mean that every experiment obviously is going to end up <laughs> with a, such a you know such a great discovery, but uh, it's about trying new things and learning what works and what doesn't.
1: If you can, I'd love to hear about some of the experiments that you have conducted and especially the economic experimentations that that have been in place. And what are some of the well hypotheses and findings?
0: So here is, um, I'll I'll just talk about something very recent that that, that we have done. this is with my colleagues uh, down at the University of Otago um, uh, Stephen Knowles and Julie Sullivan and Murat Kench. Um, we um, conducted a, an experiment testing um, procrastination and the effect of deadlines. Now procrasti- so so I mean procrastination it's a problem that probably all of us suffer from. Uh, we procrastinate on things all the time. And if, you know, it's, it's really just depends what type of task it is that we procrastinate right? uh, on. And uh, the reason why people procrastinate is because we tend to consider few, uh, present to be more important than the future. And so when there's an onerous task that we need to complete, that onerous task has costs that are immediate, right? But the benefits of the task just come in the future. And so the benefits that we are getting get discounted more heavily, right? And so it seems, so really when as a, when I'm a procrastinator, I'm really faced with the following choice. I can complete the task now and incur these costs right away. And they seem massive. And then I'm going to reap the benefits, but the benefits come in the future or I could postpone the ta- completing the task, in which case the costs are also go- going to be postponed and they don't seem as big anymore. Mm-hmm. And so many people actually do that. Now, uh, there are two types of procrastinators. Uh, there are procrastinators who are uh, naive and who don't realize that tomorrow eventually we will become today and they're going to be faced with the very same problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then they postpone again and again, and they never complete the task. On the other hand, uh, there are sophisticated procrastinators who realize that they have this self-control problem. And, I mean, and the evidence is vast, right? Sometimes it's just little tasks that we have to do. Sometimes it's important tasks, like you know, getting your uh, super uh, organized, right? Uh, refinance your
1: mortgage. Tax you returns.
0: Tax returns, right? Uh, with tax returns, if you don't complete them, right, their penalties are severe, and we, yet we still postpone these things. Um, even things in personal lives, right? We uh, realize. So let's not talk about financial things. Uh, we realize that uh, exercising is really important, but I don't really feel like exercising today. I'm going to do it later, right? I should not be smoking, but it's really hard to quit. Okay, um, and so uh, I should go to see my dentist and get my teeth uh, checked, right? But I don't really feel like doing that today. And so, you know, we have a lot of evidence of, of this procrastination. So, so the question is, well, how do we, how can we actually deal with this and and um, what helps? And um, I don't know how about you, but deadlines organize my life. A- and um, so one of the things that uh, we tested with, uh, you know, Stephen, Murat and, and Trudy was, um, what if we change the deadlines? Are the deadlines going to help procrastination? Now, there has been some research and uh, on, on that previously, um, but let me just uh, sketch out the, the two underlying ideas behind uh, why and how deadlines should work. So sort of the neoclassical, the rational model tells us that the longer the deadline, the higher the probability that people will complete it, right? Because uh-huh. um, you just have, eventually you're going to find uh, a moment in time when you're not as busy, when your costs are a little bit lower, and so you will just do that. Okay? On the other hand, for procrastinators, if I uh, give you more time, it just becomes easier for you to postpone this. Okay? Now, uh, so for procrastinators, giving them more time can actually be detrimental. Okay? The question is which one of these effects prevails well most previous studies actually just looked at two deadlines and they said well um the completions the longer the deadline uh the lower the completions that we had so that means by extending the deadline that's a terrible idea we just should have short deadlines Uh, no one ever looked at well what if we don't give people deadlines Mm how is that going to affect things? And again, so our thinking about the problem is when we, which is, has been completely ignored by the previous research is that when I give you a deadline and I ask you to do something, uh, this could be a favor for me, or this could be, you know, I, I want to say, Glenn, could you please complete the, uh, the DIY project, uh, right? Could you donate to, a, you know, the charity uh, at a request? Right. Could you donate could you to us, a volunteering organization ask you to come and help? Um, when asking and when giving deadlines, that information that is contained in a deadline is also going to tell you about the importance of the task and its urgency. And so asking you to do something very quickly implies urgency. It's like, look, I I need you to get this done right away. Could you please help me with that? And so that short deadline imposes urgency. Um, On the other hand, if I tell you, Glenn, could you please do this for me? But look, there is no rush. Um, I'm not going to even touch it for, um, for the next month. I've just basically given you a permission to procrastinate. It's
1: a free pass.
0: Exactly. And so I'm signaling to you that this is not important. And because uh, we are humans, um, we also, our memory is imperfect. We also tend to forget. And so that also what often happens, right? Tasks with long deadlines do not get completed. But now here's an important question. What if there is no deadline? Um, And uh, this, you know, the standard uh, behavioral, uh, answer would be well if there's no deadline this is like the you know the infinite deadline really and so the completions should be the lowest now notice however that uh, when charitable organizations or voluntary organizations ask for help um, they don't often specify deadlines and when they do that they do that um, because not saying that there is a deadline basically Implies the urgency. We want you to help as soon as you can, right away. Right. This is uh, this is really important to us, and so we tested that. So we ran an experiment with a representative sample of New Zealand population. Um, uh, we sent out about over three thousand letters to people all over New Zealand, was stratified across you know uh, genders, across different age groups. And we asked them to fill out a short, about 10-minute online survey. And for completing the survey, we would pay $10 uh, to a charitable organization of their choice. And um, we had three treatments, three conditions. One with a very short one-week deadline. Another one with a one-month deadline. And a third one did not have a deadline at all. We didn't even mention it. in the the letter. And the results were very surprising. Uh, The short deadline elicited a really high response rate. When we went to the the one month deadline, the response rate dropped. But then when we came to the uh, no deadline condition, the response rate was the highest. And so we find this sort of non-monotonic effect Right, Uh, which again uh, was not predicted by any previous theory. No one really thought Uh of that. Uh, And the reason why we see this, we we can also look at the completion and how how quickly people responded. And in the no deadline and uh, short deadline, people responded immediately. Right, they did it within the first three days, the vast majority of those who responded. Whereas in the one month deadline, many people just postponed, right? And this is precisely gets to the issue of uh, the deadline can signal urgency, right? Mm-hmm. It tells you that the task is important in which, people, in which case people respond right away. If you, however, give them permission, permission to procrastinate, they are going to do so. And then some of them might eventually also forget.
1: What's fascinating about that is that it's like that lack of inference. And so you choose how you respond to that request right there is no there's no short time exactly you make it up based on what you see in regards to the worthiness of that of that cause so how would you turn that around in regards to how we as as people in business should start thinking about how we are interacting and communicating with whether it's our clients or that or that wider audience that we are wanting to do more with
0: so my first observation is that we just don't experiment enough. Uh, in general, businesses are quite reluctant to try new approaches. Uh, why? Well, first of all, many managers uh, hold the belief that the current approach is best. And it's, it is, you know, working somewhat. I guess that's why you have the uh, business still um, operating. But they fail to recognize that often the way we currently do things as an organization or as a business is due to historical circumstances, it could be due to precedent. And uh, also we as people often have this um, status quo bias. we don't like to change things right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes managers can also uh, they're known to be overconfident and that things are just going to work quite well. And so these forces kind of hold the Uh, the old approach, right, together. And and, uh, there's this, um, like I said, the the status quo, and people are just reluctant to to change things. The second uh, problem um, in organization is the fear that new approach might fail. And you can understand how, for example, a manager might not Really want to talk to the CEO, to the board, and explaining to them that whatever he or she came up with didn't work. Right? We see a similar thing with politicians, right? They also prefer status quo because uh, what if what if things don't work out the, the way we planned, right? Then you have to explain yourself. So several um, this is several years ago now, um, when we still lived in Christchurch, when I was at the University of Canterbury, I applied. For a um, for a large grant, and um, we actually didn't get it. Uh, and it was about um, uh, how to what we were proposing to test how to um, decrease uh, insurance fraud. Mm. Uh, then, about year year and a half later, after our unsuccessful uh, grant, uh, I met at some um, reception a gentleman, and we started chatting, and uh, and eventually said, you know. I recognize your name from somewhere. And as it turned out, he was on the panel. Uh, he was one of the judges of the proposals that we, that we put in. I said, we thought it was really fascinating because you were sort of asking, well, how would you decrease insurance from, which is one of the biggest problems in the insurance industry. And our question just was, well, uh, how are you going to get the data? I said, well, we create the data, right? We run these experiments to see what works, what doesn't. And um, and he said, well, here was one problem. And that is, uh, there are all these uh, solutions that you economists came up with, but how do we know that they work? How do we know that something that has not been done before is actually going to pan out? And that's exactly the issue, right? If we never try things, we're never gonna find out. So yes, new things might fail, but we actually have to test whether it works. And what is important to realize is that trying is not the same thing as implementing. And so you see successful businesses around the world uh, experimenting with new approaches, testing new things, right? So um, uh, Facebook has multiple versions uh, when they test different interfaces, Google would test um, the au- formats of the auctions that happen in the background when you put in um, a search um, search word. Uber, mm. Uber has uh, a platform that is designed to... Um, test uh, what works and what doesn't. In fact, they encourage their employees to log into the platform and suggest experiments uh, to improve the performance and also suggest how to evaluate what works and what doesn't. Uh, so at any given time, they have close to a thousand experiments running.
1: Love that. Uh, Not every test needs to be implemented across the board and things like that. And that really resonated with me because I have always had this theory and this philosophy of what we take into our businesses of, we call it firing tiny cannons. So rather than making a choice to go with one big thing and putting all of our resources behind it, testing and trying multiple little things concurrently, seeing which one gets cut through, seeing which one starts working and resonating with our audience and on the marketing side of it, and then then making a, a, a little bit more of an informed decision of, well, where are we, are we going to start taking away resource from things that aren't working and putting it into those that do appear like they're working? Is that, is that the sort of philosophy that you're talking about?
0: Absolutely. Um, the important thing about experimentation is that it's a very important source of knowledge. And while on one hand, we tend to be very happy when something works and we um, figure, uh, figure out that this new approach is successful, uh, that's a great thing. But notice that when it comes to learning itself, we only kind of got a confirmation about what we already knew because the reason why we tested this approach was because we were thinking that it would work. And so the actual knowledge that we generate is from finding when things don't work. This is, uh, I'll put it in sort of my scientific perspective. The most I learn uh, is when I find out that I was wrong, because Mm -hmm. that challenges my thinking Further, And I have to figure out why is it that I was wrong? What was what, what exactly went wrong? And that allows me then to improve my service, improve my product, uh, make it more uh, desirable to my customers and whatnot. So it's the it's these little failures that generate even more knowledge than the little successes now obviously the little successes are great because then we can use them uh, for for our business but in terms of learning itself right like i said before uh, finding out what doesn't work is equally if not even more important than finding what works
1: so it's always asking that all important question why precisely
0: why and you know, the practical aspect uh, of things is, okay, experimentation is costly and time-consuming. So why, you know, why would we actually want to engage in this? Well, first of all, let me change the question and let's ask, what is the cost of not experimenting? What is the cost of not trying new things? And if you don't try new things, if you don't innovate, uh, if you are not proactive, that can lead to lost opportunities to become a market leader. Your market share can decrease. There's a really nice disaster story by Netflix. Um, I forget what year this was. Um, They changed their uh, pricing system. It was about a decade ago. And they implemented it uh, um, for all of their customers. And customers just hated it. And the, they, they were able to recover. However, had they, for example, tested this in the San Diego area, they would have found out that their customers didn't like it and they would have actually stopped from um, scaling it up. Okay? And so, um, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that, is that if a new policy is implemented and it's not working, the cost can be astronomical. Yes. But the cost of experimenting are fixed and limited. And could be budgeted for, and so that way you actually help your business grow. You understand the environment in which you're operating better. You understand your customers better. That's um, those are the advantages of experimentation of things that you can that you can actually learn. And what is important, uh, this experimentation allows you to stay ahead of the curve, right? It is not a one-off experiment that you run. Uh, in fact, experimentation allows you to learn continuously i recently collaborated with the National Transfusion Service uh, back in Slovakia, and we were designing a blood registry for them, uh, basically trying to figure out how to make the blood collection uh, system more efficient. And when we started this discussion, they, again, it's an organization that is not naturally prone to experimentation. They said, well, okay, so we're gonna implement this blood registry and then uh, will you finally leave us alone? And I said, no, because (laughs) what we are trying to do is to learn continuously, right? So once we find out that something works we're gonna implement it. If we find out that something doesn't work we're gonna try something, something different, a new thing. And so this is, it's an example of how these little steps in business in um, uh, you know, charitable organization a nonprofit organization can lead to better service.
1: Mm-hmm. And I suppose a big part of that is not only doing the experiment, but having the ability to measure the outcomes.
0: Exactly. Uh, and this is where uh, the experimental economics uh, approach is very important because we look at what people do, not what they say. So economists, we're quite skeptical about surveys, because um, in surveys, there are other influences that might matter. So suppose we had a conversation, and uh, I wanted to study generosity. And I would ask you, Glenn, um, uh, could you tell me, are, are you a generous person? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I don't know how about you, but if, if somebody asked me that question, I would really be concerned about my image. And I would try to say, of course, I'm a, I'm a very generous person. Uh, but then you're not really learning anything. So you want to quantify things. And uh, so I'm going to give you a hypothetical question now and to demonstrate that hypothetical question, hypothetical scenarios also do not uh, always lead to truthful answers. Mm-hmm. So um, if, um, if I asked you, well, suppose, Glenn, you won a um, million dollars on a lottery. How much money would you donate to a charity?
1: Very good question. And, and honestly, or maybe it's not honestly, who knows? Not a huge percentage of it because we have other, I suppose, economic factors that we need to consider as well, like mortgages and family and all of those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. Um, and so that was actually quite an honest answer. Um, mm. I'll put it again in my own perspective. If I, if, if I um, got asked this question, I would say I would donate to the entire million. Why? <laughs> because I don't have it, (laughs) it doesn't cost me anything. And, uh, you know, does the, did the charity um, get anything out of that? They didn't. And so we need, really needs to look at what is it that people do as opposed to what they say they will do. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, this is also common uh, with procrastination, what we already asked about, right? Many people will tell you, oh, I'm gonna start exercising today. I mean, look, uh, we're almost, um, we are, uh, it's almost Christmas. After uh-huh. New Year's, people are going to you know, start with their resolutions again, and uh, many will buy g- gym membership because they're going to say they're going to start exercising, and uh, th- those are their intentions. Now, fast forward to, say, February, how many of them are in the gym? Right? Huh. How many of them uh, changed their diets? How many of them stopped smoking? And so what people say that they will do is not necessarily what they truly do. And as economists, we're interested in the outcomes. So in all of these uh, experiments that we uh, have discussed, we measure, uh, we look at behavior, we look at Mm -hmm. actions, right? we measure how many people donated blood, how many people volunteered, how many people um, uh, donated to a charity and how much.
1: So do you have any take or is there any evidence uh, to support theories around solicited versus unsolicited feedback? So let's say public reviews where it is unsolicited. Um, I'm freely giving this on my own will, there has been no prompt versus I'm sending out a survey to understand um, you and what you want better.
0: Um, I haven't conducted any research on my own on this, mm-hmm. but this is uh, from what I've, what I've read in the, in the literature. When it comes to unsolicited feedback, there are two types of people who uh, are going to provide feedback. And those are the polar opposites, the mm-hmm. ones who are incredibly happy with the service and those who are extremely unhappy, right? The, who just hated the service. They didn't like the product yep. the, and, and they're just really grumpy about it. Um, the people who received the product and the product was okay are probably the ones who are just not going to bother uh, mm-hmm. providing feedback. When it comes to solicited feedback, uh, this is the type of selection problem that we often deal with um, uh, with with surveys. So, if let's let's uh, think of a scenario: you get a phone call from a uh, company conducting a survey, right? You're busy, and they say, Glenn, uh, we would like to um, ask you." 250 questions it's Hmm. probably take 45 minutes or more um would you be available and the answer is likely going to be no Mm -hmm. and so the only people who are going to be willing to answer these questions are those who are not busy or who have nothing better to do at that moment which is then going to lead to a selection meaning that you're not getting a representative sample you're not getting um you know, sort of a nice cross section of the population, but you are just getting people who, um, you know, from a particular, in a particular age group or with a particular socioeconomic status uh, that are going to be answering. And so then the the inferences that you can draw from these, uh, from these uh, surveys are just not going to be externally valid. Um, the experiments that I talk about, uh, the particularly the field experiments that we have conducted, the huge advantage is that people don't even know that they're in an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, there is no issue with scrutiny like the ones that we sort of discussed. I want to look like the nice guy. Uh, they are not really biased because they don't anticipate being an experiment and they just go about their everyday business just like they, they would otherwise. And the researchers um, are able to collect data on their behavior which then leads to um uh, allows us to test the underlying theories and then uncover the relationships of interest
1: i love it and i think that's pretty much all we've got time for today but that for me is probably one of the best gold nuggets that we've got out of this entire system so Marash, um we are going to put your contact details or where people can find you in the show notes. But is there anything that you would like to sign off with as a as a final final note in regards to how we need to start thinking about how we do business with people, not numbers.
0: Um, I, I'm going to start, or, or I'm going to sort of start. I'm going to finish on uh, not experimenting enough so we don't experiment mm-hmm. enough with our customers we don't experiment enough with our uh, employees we don't experiment enough in our own personal lives uh, and I'm saying this as a you know professor who teaches uh, about experimentation and I often catch myself that I just do things uh, in you know because we are just creatures of habits right and so mm-hmm. I do things in a particular way and uh, how Basically, experimentation is both a skill, but it's also a conscious decision, and the more we get into experimentation, the more we get into trying new things, creating perturbations in our business lives, in our personal lives, the more we're going to learn, and uh, through observing what happens, and then then we reflect on what happened uh, and, and why we behaved in a particular way or why our business performed in a particular way, why our customers did this as opposed to something else. And that reflection is then going to allow us to formulate new ideas, mm-hmm. which we can then again test to see if it work or not.
1: Well, my friend, you're one of the first people in history to make economics interesting and fun. Okay me
0: (laughs) thank you so much for that that's a uh, that's a that's a really big uh, compliment
1: I I appreciate it and I love the fact that you've taken the time to spend with us Uh, one thing I will guarantee is that I am going to make sure that at some stage in the not too distant future we jump on and we drill down into some other things because we're only just scratching the surface with what we've been covering with you today Thanks for listening into this episode, which is made possible by the team at touchpointgroup.com, a customer intelligence company you can partner with to rapidly translate your customer feedback data into actionable insights that will enable you to prioritize actions that make a demonstrable difference. You'll find a link to their website in the show notes. Thanks again. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and see you soon.